Church, let's pray together. Father, we praise you for being a God that is living and who has given us his word, which is living, active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Lord, and we ask now that as we look to this word in which you have revealed yourself fully, sufficiently, without error, such that we might know you as you are, we might know you and be in relationship with you, God, growing in our appreciation of all that you have done. We ask, Lord, that you would open our minds. Father, would you remove from us those things that might discourage, distract. Father, would you allow this time to be a respite for many in a season that is busy uh, or a season that is marked by sadness. We ask, God, that this would be one moment in which those concerns are set to the side and you speak. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, church, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, would you open them with me to the Old Testament book of Isaiah and find chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11. And we read words from this chapter together earlier, just moments sooner, but we're going to consider them again now. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. And considered the first of Israel's major prophets... This was followed by Jeremiah, Daniel, and then Ezekiel. Isaiah ministered during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. The son of Amos, of whom Scripture really reveals nothing but the man's name. It's possible that the prophet had ties to the royal family. Jewish tradition holds that Amos was a brother of Amaziah. Amaziah was Judah's ninth king and the father of Uzziah, but this can't be biblically or historically confirmed. The scripture does, however, reveal Isaiah to have been a husband and a father who lived in Jerusalem where he received what he describes as visions from the Lord. And in these divinely directed dreamlike experiences, God enabled his prophet to see his plan for his people. And it was a plan that he then made shareable by writing down all that he saw, which we now have in the words that are before us. And so we're going to read Isaiah's record of God's words spoken to his prophet as, as he, Isaiah, reflected on all that God had declared through him to King Ahaz, which was detailed in chapter 9, all of which regarded Emmanuel. And so I want you to follow along now, if you would, as I read Isaiah 11. And we're going to read a little further than we read together earlier, but reading now, beginning with verse 1, Isaiah writes, A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of power, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes, or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt, and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb, the lion or leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. 
The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like an ox. The infant will play near the cobra, and the young child put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him and his place of rest will be glorious. In that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the remnant that is left of his people from Assyria, from Lower Egypt, from Upper Egypt, from Cush, from Elam, from Babylonia, from Hamath, and from the islands of the sea. He will raise a banner for the nations and gather the exiles of Israel. He will assemble the scattered people of Judah from the four quarters of the earth. Ephraim's jealousy will vanish and Judah's enemies will be cut off. Ephraim will not be jealous of Judah, nor Judah hostile toward Ephraim. They will swoop down on the slopes of Philistia to the west. Together they will plunder the people to the east. They will lay hands on Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites will be subject to them. The Lord will dry up the gulf of the Egyptian sea. With a scorching wind, he will sweep his hand over the Euphrates. He will break it up into seven streams so that men can cross over in sandals. There will be a highway for the remnant of his people that is left from Assyria, as there was for Israel when they came up from Egypt. And may God bless the public reading of his word. And church, before we address what I believe is the central theme in this text, which is also the focus of our first Advent Sunday, namely hope, as we spoke about with our children, let me, let me just describe the setting into which these first words were spoken because the context for us in terms of our understanding this morning is key. Context is key. And, and to do this requires that we first back up a few chapters to chapter 6 in Isaiah, which opens with this glorious description of Isaiah's call to prophetic service in the year that King Uzziah died, which was around 700 BC, give or take. Now, Uzziah, or Azariah's reign, as he's also known, Uzziah's reign was one of prosperity. For the people of Judah. Second Chronicles 26 details how he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, we're told, just as his father Amaziah had done. He sought God during the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of the God. And as long as he sought the Lord, we're told God gave him success. Sadly, if you're familiar with the story of the kings of Judah, man's last 10 years were marred by the sin of pride as he flouted God's holiness and was consequently struck with leprosy. And because of this illness, his son Jotham co-reigned with him for those final ten years, and then Jotham reigned alone for a further six before his son Ahaz, who's the king in our text, assumed the throne. And Ahaz, according to 2 Chronicles 28, did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. We're told by the writer of Chronicles, he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, and also made cast idols for worshiping the Baals. He burned sacrifices in the valley of Ben-Hinnom and sacrificed his sons in the fire, following the detestable ways of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. And so God brought the Arameans against Judah. And he sent Isaiah at that point to the king, as recorded all in chapter 7 of Isaiah's book, to urge the king to turn to the Lord, to ask to trust him and ask for a sign confirming God's promised deliverance. But Ahaz, if you recall, refused. And so God pledged to bring on Ahaz and on his people 
and on the house of his father, a time, Isaiah declared, unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. God will bring the king of Assyria. And that was God's pledge. Judgment for Judah coming from the hand of Assyria's king. And <laughs> Assyria's king was a scary dude. He possessed vast armies, advanced weaponry, and the Assyrians had already trashed Damascus. They stood poised to invade Galilee and Gilead. In fact, due to Israel's wickedness, and this was the ten tribes of Israel, those in the north as opposed to Judah's two tribes, existing tribes in the south, but due to Israel's wickedness, God prophesied Samaria's destruction at the hands of the very same people, the Assyrians. That's all in chapter 8 where the Assyrians were to be God's instrument, judgment on the Israelites for their wickedness. And if you read chapter 9 of Isaiah's book that describes in brutal fashion God's wrath's effect on Israel as the land, Isaiah declared, will be scorched and the people will be fuel for the fire. No one will spare his brother on the right they will devour but still be hungry. And on the left, they'll be eating but not satisfied. Each will feed on the flesh of his own offspring. So, reality that I honestly don't think a one of us can truly comprehend. Because we live with such ease and, and opulence that suffering and the desperation that's described here is thankfully beyond our comprehension. Even when we hear tell of it, in our own day, like the stories that you may have heard from Paul and Laurel, where they've been living and serving in the Congo, just the, the heartache that they are surrounded by. Even then, I don't believe that we really get the darkness and the desperation that's detailed. And so rather this morning than trying to help us to all see and to appreciate what lay before Judah, I'm simply going to entrust the Lord to open our hearts and eyes to this reality that's being described this, this mind-numbing scene filled with the rubble of destroyed buildings, the, the rising smoke from burning foreign lands, and the, the scent of rotting corpses that would have littered the countryside. That's what the inhabitants of Judah could see looking out from the walls of Jerusalem. This is what they faced. This was their tomorrow. Their outlook was in some ways mirrored by the weather we have outside. Bleak, dreary. And Judah faced an enemy known for their cruelty and brutality. They knew. They knew of their northern neighbors' suffering and subsequent enslavement. They could even see, likely, the, the smoke still rising from Samaria's rubble. They knew they were next. And it's into this desolate scene that God then speaks words of judgment on the Assyrians. Those who'd been and were in that moment his instruments of judgment. The Lord pledges to lop off their boughs with great power. Isaiah prophesied the lofty trees will be felled. The tall ones will be brought low. He will cut the forest thickets with an axe. Lebanon will fall before the mighty one. So further imagery now directed towards Israel's enemies. Further imagery capturing the complete decimation that God is going to bring on his enemies, where before this mighty forest had spread its bowels towards heaven, now all that's to come will be jagged stumps, near and far. So friend and foe, God was revealing the extent of his wrath against humanity's wickedness. So can you, can you see it this morning? 
Can you, can you attempt to feel the hopelessness, to smell the death and to taste the bitterness of defeat? That's what Judah was facing. And again, as I said, you know, some of us likely will really struggle to envision this historical scene being described here. But the truth is, church, we all face the reality that it represents. God's judgment on sin. Now, for we who live in the West, surrounded by our plush and plenty, the stark reality of sin and its offenses against God, it's shrouded, I believe, veiled by the trappings of materialism, particularly in this season. I fear that with that reality, there are so many in our nation who blindly pursue wealth and power in hope of finding fulfillment. They console themselves with the thought that all that counts is what I can see, right? All that's around me. And therefore, they try to get as much as they can for as long as they can because happiness is all about the now, the temporary, right? And there, there's so much to be had because of where we live, but there's never enough, is there? And as those who are successful in this scheme will admit in moments of honest reflection, tragically, there are so many in our culture, the majority of us, who never accomplish that, and therefore we remain ignorant to these pursuits' emptiness, to the horror of discovering that money doesn't satisfy, that 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 power doesn't complete, and that love doesn't fulfill. And it leaves all those of us who've invested everything in these stocks with nothing. Now there are others, as we've heard from Paul and Laurel, who predominantly live in the majority world, and their daily lives more closely resemble what we're reading about here. They regularly face death from disease or from civil war, insurrection, from starvation. And for them, the imagery of Isaiah here, this is far more familiar physically. However, its causes, that those spiritual underpinnings, if you will, they remain just as blurred. And the cure is equally obscure. So can you relate this morning to either one of these perspectives? What's your worldview as you sit here this morning? Are you living for happiness? Are you... Filling your calendar with activities that bring you joy, only to find that at the end of every day, you remain incomplete. And the fulfillment that your marked off tasks provides insufficient. And therefore, you've got to get up and do it all over again tomorrow. It might even be that some of your engagements involve church, church activities, mission work, because you want to make sure you cover all of your bases. You've got to have the physical and the emotional. We need to have the spiritual as well as the intellectual. And friends, if this is us this morning, hear God's words of judgment for us. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of said sin is, according to the Apostle Paul, death. There's no one righteous, no one who does good, no one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned away, they have together become worthless. It's for this reason God promised judgment, and He promised His judgment commensurate with sin's offense. His infinite holiness, infinitely offended by sin, resulting in all sinners, every sinner's just condemnation and sentencing to eternity separated from his holiness and removed from all the pleasures associated therewith while suffering in equal measure. And that's a promise that makes Judah's outlook here pleasant by comparison. So 
Can you appreciate what Judah faced in this moment because of their sin? It's what we face because of our sin. And the Puritan preachers of the 16th and 17th century made regular reference in their sermons to what lay before sinful humankind. And in their preaching, they sought to, through their spoken word, enable their listeners to feel the warmth of divine wrath's flames, and to smell the scent of sin's stench and be warned. Because that's all we have to look forward to on our own, right? And God knew this, which is why there is the hope promise, the promise of hope. And as Isaiah records it there, this shoot that will come up from the stump of Jesse, from his roots, this branch that will bear fruit. God's reminder to Isaiah's original readers, but also to us, of his promise that was made to David, recorded in 2 Samuel 7, where there he revealed his plan to raise up your, that's King David's, to raise up your offspring to succeed you who will come from your own body. Therefore, he would be a descendant of Jesse since David was Jesse's son. And he said, God continues, I will establish his kingdom. He's the one who will build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And that was God's promise of the Messiah. That, that Savior that God had first referenced in that ugly aftermath of Adam and Eve's sin when God declared that Eve's offspring would be at enmity with the serpent who would strike his heel, but he, her offspring, would crush his head. So God promised his people hope as they looked out over the walls of Jerusalem. He promised them hope in the face of death. God promised his people hope in the face of suffering as they looked to what was the reality of their northern neighbors and what might then be theirs. God promised them hope in the face of suffering. God promised them hope in the face of sin. And Isaiah records this hope through this beautiful imagery of this green shoot growing up out of Jesse's stump and bearing fruit, where, where before this tree had only produced that which led to death. Because remember, there had been many descendants of Jesse in whom God's people had hoped and wished would be and would lead them to freedom from their enemies. But all of those had ended up leading only to death and further disappointment and frustration. This shoot would be leading to life. And according to verse 2, it would be this, this would be the shoot on whom the Spirit of the Lord will rest. The Spirit of wisdom, Isaiah says, and of understanding, the Spirit of counsel and of power, the Spirit of knowledge, and of the fear of the Lord. And those are words that sound a whole lot like those we find later on in chapter 61, where Isaiah writes that the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach, what? Good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for captives, release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort those who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion. And those were words that we know Jesus then took and applied to himself, didn't he? In Luke's Gospel, chapter 4, when he was standing in the synagogue of Nazareth, his own hometown, speaking to those with whom he'd grown up, before whom he, he, he was familiar, and he reads from Isaiah's scroll, and then he declares, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And church, what that meant was that Christ saw himself as the fulfillment of, of this prophecy, the shoot. He was the shoot 
the rose of which we sang earlier this morning. He was the shoot that was from Jesse leading to life. So do you know him this morning? And as we begin this Advent season, this, this period of weeks that lead up to our celebration of Christ, who is the Messiah's arrival, I believe it's so easy for us to forget the darkness of the day into which Christ was born, the death that surrounded that shoot, the despair and the desperation faced by God's people. Christ's birth, heralded by those angels, marked the dawning of a new day as revealed by the character of hope. The character of hope. So we've considered the promise of hope. Now let's see hope's character where the Spirit's presence is key, I believe, because Isaiah records how it, the Spirit's presence, leads to delight in the fear of the Lord. That's verse 3. So the Messiah's character is marked, defined, if you will, by his delighting in the fear of the Lord, where this fear, so referenced, isn't what we would evidence if you were with me in our home playing hide-and-seek with my children in the dark. There's fear that's reflected there, but that's not what this is, nor is it what we would all rightly fear in moments of extreme peril. What the prophet is talking about here is the fear that Solomon, I believe, described in his, in his Proverbs there, chapter 1 and verse 7, when he declares that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so to fear the Lord is, is to, as it's referenced here, is to humbly revere him. It's a, it's a posture of our hearts, of our minds. It's a posture necessarily leading to an action, obedience. And so that's why one, one pastor can write of Christ's character as it's being foretold here. His joy, so the Messiah's joy, is to tremble at the terrible prospect of displeasing God. Do our hearts tremble at the terrible prospect of displeasing God? Yeah, surely that's, that's the sense of what Christ himself conveyed as he prayed in the garden, recorded in Luke 22. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet what? Not my will, but yours be done. Sweating drops of, of blood. Christ desperately desired to avoid what lay before him. And yet what? He cared more about fulfilling God's will Church, that's obedience. That's obedience. And that's the character of the hope that Isaiah prophesied. A shoot that would grow green in a desert of death, offering life to all who would believe. Because that's why he'd come. He'd come to proclaim, as chapter 61 details, freedom to those caught up in sin, healing for those diseased and, and sickened by sin. He'd come to die so that they might live. His greatest joy was glorifying the Father. Do we delight in the fear of the Lord? You know, as we consider the Christmas season, do our hearts thrill with the knowledge that in Christ's coming, in His incarnation, God made it possible for us to look upon Him, God the Father, in the person of His Son. And not only to look on Him, but also to once again be in relationship with Him, since He is the perfect Son. Meaning, as we look to Christmas... I believe that we ought to be awed, not by the innocence so often captured in this child in the manger, but by the significance of Christ, humanity's mediator. Because by his words, his actions, Jesus perfectly fulfilled God's law on our behalf. He then took all of our brokenness and our failure upon himself before dying in our place. And he did it, why? 
all for the joy that was set before him, the delight in the fear of the Lord. Do, do we know this joy this morning, church? Is the mind that was in Christ Jesus also in us, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing? Taking the form of a servant being made in human likeness, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a what? Cross. So we've seen hope's promise and character here in our text, but I believe we can also see hope's work, or the work of hope, the work of hope. Isaiah notes, verse 3, he will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. You know, right here, I believe we see Isaiah capturing the Messiah's work in a twofold manner. First, as judging justly. Judging justly. And so unlike the rulers of the earth who we know all around us base their decisions by what they can see or what they can hear or what they think they can see and hear, Christ judges justly. And he does so with righteousness. He won't overlook the oppressed. The poor will not be cheated, nor will the rich, those with, with means be given special treatment, the Messiah will judge justly. And I, I don't know about you, but this gives me hope. Now, how often have you found yourself on the short end of the stick when it comes to life circumstances? You know, maybe you've been overlooked for a promotion, you've been refused recognition for things that were your idea, or you've been blamed for things that weren't your idea. But we live in a world of injustice, don't we? And it's almost become a catchy phrase in recent years, the injustice of life and all of those manners, the ways in which we see it evidenced. But, you know, we at the same time as we do live in a, a world with injustice, we who live in the United States are blessed with a judicial system that it is imperfect, but it is certainly a far cry better than that employed in many other countries of the world. And yet we still encounter injustice, don't we? Messiah's rule promises justice and appropriate punishment or reward appropriate punishment or reward meaning the guilty will not go unpunished nor will the oppressed or the innocent be oppressed and in a sense this is related to the previous point that of the messiah's just judgment but i'm making it as a distinct point because it's the outworking if you will of those just judgments in other words the previous point the the messiah's just judgment that previous point establishes the standing of all before God. You're either innocent or you're guilty. Whereas this, this second, the appropriate punishment or reward, details the action that's then taken in light of said standing. And interestingly enough, the Apostle Paul actually uses the final words of verse 4 here in Isaiah 11. Verse 4, he uses these same words in his second letter to the Thessalonians in chapter 2 and verse 8, where he says this, and then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. Well, that's obviously not a reference to Bethlehem, is it? And the lawless one isn't a description in this case of disobedient people, but rather of our adversary. Friends, the hope, again, the beauty of hope's work here is Christ's justice and our guarantee that righteousness is his belt 
It's his belt. The righteousness is his. And faithfulness is the sash that surrounds his waist. Because in Christ's perfect fulfillment of the law, he merited, he, he merited once again right relationship, right standing with God. And then he made that glorious reality available to all. That righteousness which surrounds him, he made that available to all who confess their sin and believe in him. But not only did he provide his righteousness, but he also provided or removed our guilt. He became sin who knew no sin so that we might become that righteousness. So Christ took upon himself our sin. He bore our punishment so that he might be both just, as we know, not just ignoring the offenses of our sin, but sweeping it under a rug, so to speak. But he became both just and the justifier, the one who gives us right standing before God. And how does he do all of this? Grace. Not a one of us deserves this work of Christ, of hope on our behalf. All that he did, Christ did while we were still sinners. We were all wicked, justly facing the punishment promised when he strikes the earth as described here with his mouth rod. Now what we receive, we receive by grace through faith. So this morning, as a question, have you experienced hope's work? Is, is Christ's work on your behalf your hope? As the psalmist sings in Psalm 119, 166, I hope for your salvation and therefore carry out your commands. Do you, do you hope in Christ alone for your salvation and therefore out of love for what he has done for you and graciously gifted to you obey his commands or is your hope in your obedience to his commands or something similar that then may bring about your salvation where is your hope in your work or the work of the promised messiah who did it all for you so we've seen hope's promise character and work and with our remaining time i want us just to consider the kingdom of hope the kingdom of hope, which clearly is Christ's kingdom. And it's characterized by his promised peace. And this is a, a peace that we know passes all understanding. But here, we're given a little bit more meat to what that means. Is this peace blows minds as one day wolves will lie or live with lambs. I've just been watching BBC Planet Earths with wolves. This blows minds. This is, this is not what you see when we look at our world today, is it? Leopards lying with goats, calves and lions playing together, and little children. I've been surrounded by them over the holiday break, leading. This is why one theologian can say this is a picture of something radically new. And that may be an understatement of the year. Radically new, where the hurting forces and the destructive forces that touch animals and children will be gone. And how will this all come to be? Isaiah gives us this reason in the second half of verse 19, or verse 9. For the earth, why will all this happen? Why? Because the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So in this kingdom, all inhabitants will be so filled with the knowledge of God, or they will know God so intimately and completely that everything is different. And that's a reality that God has gifted to us as people. As we look out and we see what is, we realize that what is at present is not what will one day be. We live in a reality that still bears the effects of the fall 
And so we see success where there shouldn't be success. And we grieve over injustice where we ought to see justice. And yet we don't, we don't grieve without hope because we know that what God has promised is coming. Reality is not what we see. It's what Christ has worked in us. Can you imagine what God has promised for his people? This beautiful kingdom of hope. And I, again, as with as with the reality of what Judah faced looking off the walls of Jerusalem. I don't, I don't know that we can. I don't believe it's fully possible. Because all that we know in our world is limited. It's broken. It is lovely by degree as it reflects God's original design. And as Paul informs us in Romans, it directs us to inexcusable acknowledgement of God's existence. However, the full glory of hope's promised kingdom remains that a promised kingdom a future hope because we certainly haven't received it yet and that's abundantly clear to all who have breath in their lungs and an operating mind but when will this hope be realized and sadly we're not given dates and times our prophet doesn't provide us with those details but he does note in verse 10 that in that day the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his place of rest will be what? Glorious. Glorious, which I take to be a, a description of what John was privileged enough to see in Revelation 7. In Revelation 7, 9, John's vision was of a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb and they cried out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, that shoot of Jesse. Guys, that's the day that we hope for. That's the day that we look for forward to with all that we're worth. That's the day made possible by that which we celebrate here in a few weeks. But church, may we not confuse those two days. May we not misplace our excitement in our annual celebration of Christ's first coming when it merely points us to the second coming. And I pray that every one of us this morning can look with hope to that day. But if you can't, or if you're not sure, then as we close, I want to encourage you to talk with me or someone else, but find the hope that Christ offers. And for we who are living in that hope, Emmanuel, might we be empowered to live in light of it while there is attention given to our Savior's first arrival to speak of that second which is the most important to any and all who will listen. May we be emboldened to speak with joy of the hope that is ours because this is why Christ came. He left his throne so that we might have life in relationship with God. Would you pray with me as we close? Father, you did, Jesus, leave your throne and you came and lived among us and we remember the beauty of your first coming 
God, we have made this celebration so significant in our calendars. And yet, Father, we fail to appreciate, I believe, how it only points us to the second coming, the day which we all look forward to, when you will return and things will be as you desire them to be for forever. But Father, without this first coming, without the incarnation of God the Son, we would have no hope in that second coming. For your becoming like us in every way apart from sin and your journey that led to a cross, a plan that came out from before you spoke all that is into being. God, apart from these steps, there would be no hope for us in that second coming. So God, we give you thanks as your people for the hope that is ours to which you have opened our eyes by your grace. And as our, our world in many regards takes time in this brief month to focus on, on Christmas, may you remind us daily and give us opportunities regularly, God, to speak of the hope that is ours and what this hope points to. Not merely the first coming of a child in a manger, but more importantly, the return of a, of a king who was crucified on behalf of sinners so that they might look forward to that return with joy and hope. God, thank you for the hope which is ours. Lord Jesus, thank you for leaving your throne and coming and living amongst us. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.